welcome to Circumcessions. My name is Fardado Kelly, and on this episode, I have the huge privilege of co-hosting with Professor Tony Caldemone, who is not only the outgoing editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pediatric Urology and has held more national and international leadership positions than I have had hot dinners, but is also a friend and mentor. Our guest today on the podcast is none other than Mr. Patrick Malone, a fellow Dubliner and a true pioneer in paediatric urology over the last three to four decades. He bridged the gap between adult urology and paediatric general surgery and is one of the giants who has been instrumental in shaping paediatric urology. Right, so it is an absolute pleasure to have uh, Mr. Pat Malone and Professor Tony Caldemone uh, with me on the podcast here today. Uh, it's, it's a real thrill and something we've been trying to uh, really organized over the last couple of years but I suppose uh, maybe uh, Pat if you could maybe tell me a little bit about your training pathway how did you get into pediatric urology and then how did you end up going to the UK to practice in the UK well my training was uh, as an undergraduate at UCD and the Matter Hospital in Dublin and uh, having qualified there I went back to UCD and did a BSc in anatomy and embryology and then I moved into a basic surgical training program that brought me through Dublin and then Limerick. You, you'd know Fardad, Limerick is the home of Munster Rugby and something that I will be forever proud of. And then my first registrar job in the training system in Ireland was in Crumlin, where I worked with three paediatric surgeons Eddie Guiney, Ray Fitzgerald, and Barry O'Donnell, who was essentially a pediatric urologist, but practiced all aspects of pediatric surgery. And it was then expected, as it probably is still, that you could not complete any training in Ireland without going abroad. And you had choices of North America, Australia, or the UK, and I ended up going to the UK. In the UK, I started working at Worcester Royal Infirmary, which is in the Midlands, just below Birmingham. And I worked for a year and a half with two surgeons, one of whom's main interest was urology, and the second main interest of the other surgeon was colorectal. So within that system, I learned a lot about pelvic surgery and about urology, and it just stimulated a, a, an interest in that area for me, although I hadn't even thought of pediatric urology as the uh, end result. Uh, did my Master of Surgery research down in London at King's College Hospital, and once I'd completed that, went to Birmingham Children's Hospital and worked with two more Irish men. In fact, a fellow called uh, Sean Corkery, who you might have heard of Fardod, and I'm sure uh, Tony has, and another chap called uh, Ray Buick. Mm -hmm. And Ray Buick had been my senior registrar in Dublin. And I worked there for uh, nine months doing general paediatric surgery and I was away on holidays when a job in as a senior registrar in paediatric um, surgery in Great Ormond Street came up 
and Ray Buick, knowing I wasn't around to see the advert, uh, rejigged my CV and sent it in as an application form to Great Ormond Street and only informed me of it when I wondered what was going on when I got an invitation to go for an interview. Um, I suppose this is where you, you train with people and you meet friends and the Irish way of doing things is one of, I think you should have that job and I don't care if he's going to apply or not, I'm going to apply for him. And um, went down to the interview in Great Ormond Street and lo and behold, they offered me the job. And whilst there, I worked with some amazing people and Ed Kiley or Ed, Edward Kiley was one of the paediatric surgeons there. Another Irishman, I'm afraid to say, where just Tony, I'm sorry, I know you're of <laughs> Italian American background, but um, the Paddies rule the world. And um, Ed Kylie, I would have to say, was the best technical surgeon I have ever met in all my days of practicing surgery. And he nagged me into beat me into respecting tissues and treating tissues and dissection with an approach that I had never known or seen before. And he taught me lessons that I never forgot. And I, I still remember them and I still remember the sweat on my brow when he used to look at me over the across the operating table and say, do you think you could do that any better? <laughs> and the answer was always, yes, sir. But then I met somebody less rigid than Patrick, uh, than Ed Kylie. I met a duo called Ransley and Duffy. And they changed my whole aspect and approach to pediatric surgery and surgery in children. They opened a window for me into pediatric urology, which was a specialty uh, I had never before considered. But having worked in as a, a adult urologist in Worcester for, you know, a year and a half, all of a sudden this whole connection of the urinary tract clicked with me. And it was there and then I decided this is what I want to do and this is what I want to be. I went through my senior registrar system at Great Ormond Street, got accredited in paediatric surgery, but Philip Rensley turned around to me and said, you cannot become a paediatric urologist by doing proper adult urology. So I moved from Great Ormond Street then to the Institute of Urology, which was then at the Shaftesbury Hospital and St. Peter's and St. Paul's, which Tony will remember very well. You're too young, Fardot. You're, you're, you know, you were probably just nappies at this stage. And I met people there like Julian Shah, an adult urologist called Peter Worth, who was the most wonderful teacher you could ever meet. Christopher Woodhouse, and I continued to work with Philip and Patrick whilst I was there. And 
I, I think that was my finishing school. I didn't have to go to Switzerland for my finishing school. I went to the Institute of Urology in London. And that was it. I was committed. I uh, knew what I wanted to do. And then I got a consultant job in Southampton, replacing uh, a fellow called John Ashwell, who again was a general pediatric surgeon, but with a major interest uh, in pediatric urology. He had been trained by D.I. Williams during his time, but he continued to do general pediatric surgery. And I arrived in Southampton and took over his job. And I was on call for general pediatric surgery for three years after going there. There was one long, there were three of us, but there was one long Easter bank holiday weekend, Good Friday and Saturday, Sunday, Easter Monday. And I was on call and we had three in-house esophageal atresias. And I transferred all three of them up to Great Ormond Street. And the medical director hauled me over the coals on Tuesday and said, what do you think you're doing? And I said, well, look, I haven't done an esophageal atresia in the last four years. There are people up in Great Ormond Street and Ed Kiley was on duty that weekend as well. I said, who were doing perhaps five or six a month. So where would you like your grandson operated on? In Southampton or at Great Ormond Street? And he said, fine. I'm taking you off the general paediatric surgery on coal rotor, but you're one-on-one -on -one for paediatric urology. Do you accept that deal? Ah, uh, okay. And I said I did. So that was me becoming a pure paediatric urologist in 1993. That's incredible. And by the time I retired in 2013, we had a unit with three full-time paediatric urologists and three full-time paediatric nephrologists providing a total renal care service to the patients that came to Southampton. So that was my route to the UK and where I ended up as a paediatric urologist. That's, that's amazing. And, you, you know, I've, I've spoken with uh, Professor Bob Whitaker and talked to him about his time during training. And I suppose at that time, you know, there seems to be a reasonable overlap between uh, ped surgery and, and, and urology. But who, who was really managing the pediatric urology cases at that time? I mean, was there, was there a reasonable collaboration between the two uh, specialties or was there still a bit of contention between, between both? And, and who, 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 you know, who was kind of taking ownership of them at that point? There was a little bit of contention, um, but when I said I'd be on one and one for paediatric urology, and paediatric surgeons then went on to a one and two, um, common sense and personal, uh, you know, life space dictated that they agreed to the separation. I actually, for that, I think it's a mistake to think of the contention just between pediatric surgery and pediatric urology. Because I think pediatric urology sits in a very 
special niche. I think pediatric urology has to work very closely with pediatric surgery because pediatric surgery deals with anorectal malformations, spina bifida, and we deal with cloacal malformations. But all of the neuropathic issues that come with spina bifida, that come with anorectal malformations, with con that come with sacrococcygeal teratoma, we have to work hand in hand with pediatric surgeons to make that right. However, as pediatric surgeons, we don't have the full training or the background skills to deal with things like stones in the urinary tract. Our adult urologists are seeing hundreds of these a year. They have the skills. They mightn't be very good at looking after children, but they have the technical skills for dealing with stones. So quickly, became apparent to me that not only did I have to work very closely with my pediatric surgical colleagues, but also with my adult surgical colleagues. And the other thing I think is the difference between adult urology and pediatric urology is a lot of adult urology now is dealt with dealing with cancer and getting cures. I think pediatric urology and dealing with most of the children we see with congenital abnormalities of the urinary tract is dealing with preservation of renal function. And therefore, we have to work as closely with our pediatric nephrology colleagues as we do with our pediatric surgeons and with our adult um, urologists. And of course, then, hopefully, if we're good enough, our patients will survive to be adolescents. And you have to then work with the adolescent urologists. So I think pediatric urology is almost unique amongst the surgical specialties as to require a very close working relationship with pediatric surgery, pediatric nephrology, adolescent nephrology, and adult urology. And I think that makes it special. And I think that makes the training we should be offering pediatric urologists nowadays should cover that broad perspective of what's going to be required when they're out there. Absolutely. So I, I, I think that we should um, probably not, this, not let this conversation go on too much longer without hitting on one of your most important contributions and um, one of the ones that I think you're most noted for as well, and that is the uh, Mace or Malone Antigrade Continence Enema. So Pat, give us a little bit of insight into um, how did that light bulb moment, light bulb moment happen and what was your thought process at the time and what what pushed you to bring it into uh, clinical fruition? I suppose the one word that would start that started it all was frustration. When I went to Great Ormond Street, 
I used to work every Friday from about one o'clock in the afternoon till nine o'clock at night with Philip Bransley when he had his major list when we did all of our bladder reconstructions. And I had been doing this for six months and we were making loads of people urinary continent and giving them safe bladders. But all of them came back in nappies or diapers with fecal incontinence. And although we were protecting their upper tracts, we weren't improving their or their parents' lifestyles. They still required their nappies. They still were isolated because of their fecal incontinence. And that really frustrated me. I just thought, what's the point in spending all of this time reconstructing a bladder and at the end of the day, they're still incontinent. As I said, when I went to Worcester, I worked with a man who was interested in colorectal surgery. And his main interest was on table, acute bowel prep. So if we had an obstructing bowel cancer, he used to divide the colon above the cancer put in one of these corrugated um, anaesthetic tubings into the open end of the bowel, stick a catheter through the locked up end of the appendix, a Foley catheter, blow up the balloon and do an anti-grade bowel prep into a bucket beside the table through the anaesthetic tubing get a complete bowel prep done, and then he used to resect the tumour and do a primary anastomosis. And then when I was working in GOS, we started doing metrophonos. Again, the appendix was being used as an access for a tube to get into the bladder. And all of a sudden, one night, I thought, you know, we used to flush fluids through the appendix to clear the bowel to allow a primary anastomosis. And now we're bringing the appendix out onto the skin as an accessible stoma. Why the heck can't we do that for our patients with neuropathic bowel? Do a metrophonoff on the cecum and do anti-grade washouts. Tony, I'm sure you remember the moon. That pub across <laughs> the road from Great Ormond Street, where on a Friday night at nine o'clock, we used to repair after Ransley's mega list. So we were sitting there one night with Philip and I said to him, Philip, I've got an idea. Why don't we do a metrophonoff to the cecum? Stick in a catheter and give a washout through it while they're sitting on the loo. And if we get complete colonic emptying, I'm sure they'd be fecally continent for 48 hours or so. I got the look, and you know what I mean by the look. 
That is the most stupid idea I have ever heard in all my life. Talk about deflation. Good job I'd had a few pints down by then, but um, it helped the, uh, the landing. It wasn't so hard. Monday morning, as befits the man, I have to say, comes in and says, I might have been a bit rash on Friday night. Doesn't strike me as being as stupid as I first thought. He said, because we're urologists, you've got to get a general paediatric surgeon on board. So get Kylie, have a chat with Kylie and get him on board. And he said, there's no point in looking at it until we have six patients. He says, it's your responsibility to go find six suitable patients, consent them, and we'll go and we'll do three one day and three the next day, and we'll take it from there. And Kylie came on board. The patients just jumped at the idea. If there was any, they, they were so distraught about their incontinence, they would take any opportunity to get rid of it. And over two Fridays, we operated on six patients. And over the next six months, uh, it was trial and error with the washouts as to how it would go. Essentially, th there was a paediatric surgical senior registrar in Great Ormond at the time, and I, I've got to mention her, and I hope, Fardod, you'll keep her in the podcast. A lady called Evelyn Dykes, who had worked in uh, Sick Kids in Toronto, and I was in the Institute of Urology at the time, but she was the person who managed the washouts and made sure it would work. And I think if it wasn't for her, I think it would have died uh, in utero. But she pushed hard and at the end of six months, all six patients were continent and their parents were happy. I'm not, I can't say all of the kids were happy uh, because sitting on the loo for an hour, having a washout is no big uh, happiness for a child, but for their parents not to have an incontinent child for the next 48 hours was a big bonus. So we reported it in, in, in The Lancet and it just went on from there. Philip travelled North America. He promoted it and he never once said it was his idea and i know a lot of bosses who would have said oh look what i've just invented he gave me the credit for it every step along the way and i think that is a, 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 a you know tells tells me what sort of man he was that's where it came from and I suppose the biggest promoter to start with in the United States was Marty Cole. And he pushed it, he operated on it, he demonstrated it. 
and it just developed from there. And I suppose the, then Rick Rink in Indianapolis took it on. And I can tell you one thing, he must have done about 10 times the number of aces that I ever did. So that's where it started. That's where it came from. And where it is now, I'm not so sure. I was very disappointed when some of my patients went into adult life and sent them over to adult colorectal surgeons. And within three months of meeting an adult colorectal surgeon, a number of them ended up with glossary. Mm. And they came back to me and they said, we appreciate everything you've done, but it's much easier to manage a colostomy than the ACE procedure. Thank you very much, but I'm much better off now. Now, I know some people say it works as well and continues into adult life. And I will agree, it probably does for some, but certainly not for all. And if there is one message I would like to give to any surgeon who uses the ACE is it'll work. It might work great in childhood. It might be great for the parents. But when your patient opts for a colostomy in adult life, that is not a failure because treating your patients is part of a continuum. And as they grow older and as they mature, what they want out of life is different what they do in childhood. So it might work for them and improve their quality of life in childhood, but if they want a colostomy in later life, so be it. Very, 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 very wise words. So it sounds like when you first started this, and obviously it was intended for children, I mean, you really jumped in with both feet and you put it, you put it out there, you tested it, seem to uh, perform very, very well in that population. Since then, of course, there've been other variations of the mace, including the lace procedure and the secostomy tube. So other thoughts that might have occurred to you at the time or since then, uh, and other variations, your thoughts about those uh, regarding the mace procedure? I, I, I've tried all of the variations you've mentioned between the, um, the lace procedure and if I had a patient with the sequel ACE procedure and it wasn't working due to very long transit times, I would then try a LACE procedure. And we used to do that um, colonoscopically with one of my gastroenterology colleagues, where we'd um, stick in a tube into the left colon and try it. My experience with the lace was never very good, to be honest with you. And I think most of the problems with chronic constipation in that group of patients rests in the distal sigmoid colon and the lack of, um, you know, colonic activity there. And 
although some people have said the lace is great, it wasn't my experience. The use of the um, the secostomy tube, I think it actually works as well as the intermittent uh, ace through a continent stoma. And there doesn't seem to be any difference between it. But for a child growing up, not to have an indwelling catheter, in my experience, was more important than anything else. They did not, not like indwelling catheters. And to be catheter-free for 48 hours and only have to catheterize themselves to a stoma once every 48 hours for an hour or maybe two. To them, it was a bonus as opposed to an indwelling catheter like a, um, a tubal uh, secostomy. That was my experience with the children I dealt with. Amazing. That's, that's... So I would still go for an ACE. I wouldn't bother with a, a lace anymore personally, not that I do it anymore. And at the end of the day, I will still say, if they find the hour or two hours a day sitting on a loo too much, don't feel a failure because they want to close to me. That's incredible. Having, I suppose, had the experience of such a uh, a long and illustrious career, I suppose you've seen trends come and go over the over the years. And I suppose quickly, if if you were to be able to look into a crystal ball and 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 pick out one thing as you see for the future of pediatrology, and indeed thinking back on your own career, if you could change one thing, what would that be? Oh, that is a help. The future. I, I know minimally invasive surgery has become one of the biggest driving things in pediatric urology. One of the disappointments I had with minimally invasive surgery, and I don't know if they're still doing it because I haven't been involved with it recently, but there seemed to be this attitude that, oh, we can do this operation minimally invasively now, and you weren't doing it previously, but now we can do it minimally invasively. Let's get on with it. And I think the one of the main things was I thought of was the multicystic dysplastic kidney. You guys used to take it out with open surgery. Then, thanks to Ramsley and a whole lot of other people, we discovered that the multicystic dysplastic kidney actually involuted in the majority of cases. Now, I know there was a real argument between David Goff and a few others, but by and large, the multicystic dysplastic kidney was a benign condition that, in the majority of cases, probably did not need any surgical intervention. And then 
once laparoscopic surgery came in, everybody thought, oh, let's do this because we should do minimally invasive surgery. And I suppose my attitude is, if minimally invasive surgery can replace essential surgery that is invasive, then it's a good thing. But if you start doing unnecessary operations because they are minimally invasive, then it is a travesty. And I think that happened. I now know through some of my successors in Southampton that they are doing laparoscopically assisted um, bladder reconstructions, uh, laparoscopic pyeloplasties, operations that need doing and are less traumatic and invasive for the patient. I think that's great and I think that should continue. But I think the concept of returning to an operation because it's minimally invasive but not necessary is wrong. What would I change in my approach to my surgical career? I think I would like to have been more considerate and more thoughtful about my approach to parents, families and their children who had horrible conditions that weren't curable, but were manageable. And I would like to have dealt with them in a more considerate and humane way. And that's the one thing I wake up at night thinking about still saying, you know, I could have done this better. It's incredible. Dr. Malone, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. That was a, a real tour de force and what a fascinating insight into how things develop and uh, and giving us a, a glimpse of what is really an, an outstanding uh, a career. And I'm, I'm so, I, I know Professor Calderman will feel the same. Thank you so, so much. And we're, we're so grateful to have you on. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure.